This morning's scripture reading is Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Now the context for today's scripture reading is that Jesus has just taught the disciples what to do when your brother sins against you. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay that, the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It was late October 2013, right around there. My wife and I were running the Monster Dash Half Marathon, and we saw him. Who is he? Well, he was a man dressed up as the Count from Sesame Street. And as we ran, ticking off the miles toward the finish, he would mimic the Count's voice, counting down the miles until we finally reached the end of the race. The Christian life, loved ones, in some ways, is one where we keep count. We just read about that in Psalm 90. Lord, teach us to number our days. Vikings quarterback Kirk Cousins, a professing Christian, has a visual way that he does this. He has a pile of stones in front of his house, and he removes one stone per month, reminding him of the time that has passed and to redeem the time that God has given him. In some ways, we keep count. But when it comes to what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 18, we don't. And yet, this is the time in our hearts where we often try to remember 
the most, unfortunately. What's he talking about? Keeping score. Love keeps no record of wrongs. When it comes to sin and forgiveness, naturally we do that. We remember every time someone offended us or slighted us or ignored us or said something that bothered us or hurt us or sinned against us. We've got this record in our minds a mile long or a half a marathon long. In our pride, we remember But when this happens, we don't remember the gospel. Beloved, there are so many that have never in their hearts said these three words. Please forgive me. Or the three words that follow. I forgive you. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And this parable is a reminder of a man asking for forgiveness, graciously receiving it, and being utterly unchanged by it. Our forgiving others from the heart is grounded on God forgiving us in Christ. Let's look first at the context in Peter's question. In Matthew 18, verse 1, Jesus is hearing the disciples talk about what? Who's the greatest? They're boasting, and Jesus is saying, it's about humility in my kingdom serving one another, and remembering that we are going to offend each other. In the context here, it's particularly the church, but it applies to our families, our schools, our relationships. As Christians, we're going to sin against each other. We're going to say things to each other we shouldn't. It's hard stuff. How often should then we forgive one another? That's what Peter's saying. I I don't know if I like this, Jesus. The rabbis in that day said, well, three or four times. If someone sins, that's about all. Peter thinks, I'm being generous. How about seven times? Is that enough, God? When when a sin is happening, now notice this is a real sin. This is not an imagined offense, but a sin that is dishonoring God, breaking his law. Jesus says, I say to you 70 times seven. Literally, that comes out of Genesis 4. Do you remember Lamech, who boasted in his vengeance after he killed a man? He said, Lamech's vengeance is 70 times 7. Jesus flips it around. Jesus redeems it. Jesus says, okay, not literally 490. He's not saying that. He's saying, don't keep count. Especially in the body of Christ. And there's a connection here with gospel graces in our hearts between three things that the parable talks about. Patience, compassion, and forgiveness. Do you notice in verse 26, in the parable, the man will plead for patience. Patience is long-suffering. Patience, which only comes by the power of the Spirit, has a long fuse. So when others criticize us, offend us, Sin against us. Long-suffering means we don't sulk. We don't internalize it. We don't run down all the reasons we hate them. We don't beat ourselves up. We don't get filled with self-pity. On the other hand, long-suffering means we don't blow up at them. Hebrews 12, see that no root of bitterness springs up. Bitterness defiles many. Bitterness in a home defiles the spouse the kids, 
in a church, the church family, in a business, on a sports team. Kids, you know why some of these sports teams that have the best athletes don't do well. A lot of it is because they're not working together. They're not serving each other. Bitterness is so hard to see in ourselves. Satan works to make minor disputes into major battles. He wants this momentary disagreement to simmer and then to boil. He wants us to have a record in our minds of all the times this person has done this against us so that when we think of them, that's all we can think of. So that we just focus on that entirely. Bitterness is self-deceiving. We think we're angry because of what someone else has done, but bitterness doesn't depend on how great the sin is. It often depends on how close the person is to us, which is why you see this manifest in families over and over. Bitterness gets a following. Bitter people flock together. Have you noticed that? So by the gospel grace of patience... Look at verse 27. This leads to the gospel grace of showing pity. See that word pity? Not feeling sorry for someone, but compassion. As one man writes in his book, Forgiveness, to avoid being put in the jailhouse of our bitter anger, we need to have compassion on the person who has wronged us. To have our heart go out to them, to identify with them, to put ourselves in their place, to realize we're not different than they are. We've sinned in this way or in another way or in a worse way. When we stay angry at someone, we reduce them to what they have done to us. We don't think at all of what we've done to them. We can only stay mad when we think that we're superior to them and think that we're not sinners as well. This author says, you must identify with them or you will be in the jailhouse of anger. The combination of the grace of patience and compassion leads to forgiveness. Peter's saying, okay, I want a number. Jesus is saying, let's not think about a number, Peter. Let's remember what forgiveness is. First of all, what is it not? Well, it's not the absence of consequences. It's not cheap grace, fake repentance, putting yourself in a spot where you're just being beaten over and over again. There are issues of church discipline and scandalous public unrepentant sin. Jesus talks about that elsewhere, but right now he's not talking about that. Forgiveness doesn't mean that the sin doesn't matter. It doesn't mean you trust the person all of a sudden right away. It certainly doesn't mean what the culture says, which is no forgiveness at all, right? The culture is like Inigo Montoya, any Princess Bride fans, who spends his whole life, remember? My name is Inigo Montoya, easy for you to say, right? (laughs) You killed my father, prepare to die. That's not Christian forgiveness. It's a great movie, but it's not Christian forgiveness. The culture says vengeance, retaliation, revenge. Forgiveness is not saying, I forget. Some say, well, I can't forget, then I'm not going to forgive. If we go down that path, welcome to the subterranean tunnels of our bitter heart. 
Breathe in those gases. Welcome to a dungeon. Unforgiveness is the poison that we drink hoping others will die. That bitter, stubborn, proud, eating us up inside. Forgiving is an active process. It's not the memory that fades. It's not a feeling. The band was right. It's more than a feeling. It's not, okay, I'll forgive if I feel that way. It's by the power of the Spirit of God through the gospel, an act of the will, a promise. It's between two parties. It's not therapeutic. It's courageous. It's clear-minded. It's the patience to bear suffering, to forgive the debt, to absorb it on yourself, rather than retaliating. So here's what the author says. To forgive means you release someone from their liability to suffer penalty or punishment. You don't make them pay for what they did. You can either take payments on the debt or make them. You take them by withholding forgiveness, right? By dwelling on it. By just gossiping about it. By inflicting emotional pain. By being cold and aloof and giving up on the relationship. To forgive means to bear the cost of the misdeed of others. Say it's a bumper on your car. Your kid throws a baseball and the bumper kind of gets cracked. Kind of like Mahomes' helmet in the cold. To forgive says, okay, I'm not going to just lash out in anger at that, son. We're going to work on it together. Maybe we're going to glue it or we're going to, right? We're not going to hold it against someone. I'm not going to say to my son, I am angry with you and I'm going to be apathetic or I'm going to be angry because of this. It means not becoming cynical or self-absorbed. It means the death of bitterness. It may take time. It may be the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts, because Jesus here is saying, by nature we say, well, I don't see a change in you. If you've sinned this many times, one more, you're done, I'm out. Calvin says this, there's the willingness to forgive, and there's the forgiveness of a repentant person that helps restore the relationship. Those two are different. They both need to be here. Remember, Jesus is not talking about every particular nuance. Our business is not to know the heart. If someone is really repentant, only God knows there will be fruit if it's true. But Jesus is saying here, by the power of the vertical gospel, the costly grace, there is a horizontal effect to it. So where's the foundation in this? Secondly, it's in the parable. Forgiveness is understood now in light of what Jesus says in terms of this very vivid story. Secondly, this parable is not a real-life king. It's not like this person literally lived. It's a simple story. A king notices his finances are off. The steward, not a gardener probably, but someone that has an enormous responsibility for an enormous amount of money, says, you know what? We're short 10,000 talents. You think, well, what's that? If you put it into today's money, a talent is 20 years labor. So literally, 
we are short 200,000 years of labor here. It's intended to shock. It's hyperbole. Jesus uses that in his parables. It's infinite. It's impossible to repay. It's unimaginable. You can't even put it in today's dollars. You, you might try, but with inflation, where are you going to end up? Six billion, 10 billion, six trillion? The king takes the grave step. Because of this debt, you, your wife, and your kids are slaves, which is what happened in that day if someone couldn't pay a debt. This man, as Ferguson says, is a picture of the hopelessness of the human condition. The king stands for our heavenly father. Do you notice that in verse 35? What we're meant to see here, and we don't get this until we see it, is that this is not about some servant off in a faraway land. This is not about someone that has offended us. This is about me. I am the one with this infinite debt. This parable is a reflection of my heart. We sin because we are sinners. Breaking God's law, dishonoring the Lord who made us, grieving the Holy Spirit. As God's creatures, he calls upon us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors ourself. God calls for perfect obedience, glory due to his name. The debt is infinite. We have not loved God perfectly. The whole world is full of God's debtors, running up debts through selfish ambition, through hearts of harsh, bitter words. None of us can help each other in this. That's the point. There's no one around you here or in the world that can help you with this debt. It's impossible to deal with on our own. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've taken the resources God's given to us and returned to him in gratitude. This man, 200,000 years to repay. He goes to the king. What does he say? Just give me more time. I will do it. Ferguson says this is about our natural disposition. This guy's clueless, blind, self-deluded. This is often what people think when they first realize, okay, I failed God, I've sinned. God, be patient, just give me some time here. I'll repay it. I'll figure it out. I've got some resources. I know some people. They know some people. We'll come together with the money. We'll pay off and we'll atone for our sin. We'll feel sorry enough for ourselves. We'll try to do enough good works to earn your favor. The default mode of the human heart is I control my life. I control everything. I control if I'm saved. The author again. The idea of God's grace, free and demerited, is insulting to the self-absorbed human heart. Jean Valjean, lame is. He's overthrown by the forgiveness that's offered. Why? Because he realizes it robs him of the self-pity and the self-righteousness that makes him rationalize an angry and selfish life. Welcome to the human heart. 
Pilgrim's Progress is another example. Do you remember? He goes to Mr. Legality in the village of morality. He's being beaten. He cries out for mercy. Who's beating him? Moses. The judgment of the law. He feels his burden. He goes to the wrong place. He goes to the hill of, I'll do it. I'll figure it out. I'll try harder. I'll be better. I failed. Just let me try more. Beloved, there's no debtor's ethic. It's hopeless to try to pay our debt back to God. And yet many think that they do that. Okay, I'll come to church enough. I'll go to the prayer meeting here. I'll, I'll, I'll do this and I'll do that. And I'll reduce my debt. We don't pay the debt back. That's what every false religion in the world tries to do. Verse 27. Look at the reversal. The king does more than the steward asks. He called the debt alone, forgave it, and he dismisses the steward. How can the king forgive an infinite debt like that? Beloved, this is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The incredible, amazing, astounding grace of Jesus. What is God like? Exodus 34. The Lord merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving sin, iniquity, transgression. Micah 7. He casts our sins into the depths of the sea. Mike is searching for something here. What's the biggest, scariest thing he can think of? The ocean. The depths of the ocean of which we can't even fathom. That's what God is like. Where can forgiveness then be found? God is holy, holy, holy. He doesn't ignore sin. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. How can God forgive sinful debtors and not swallow us up in his just wrath? Because he lays our iniquities upon Jesus, our debts upon the sinless Son of God. In Adam we fell, in Christ by faith, the last Adam, we are forgiven and righteous. The Father loves his Son. He sends his Son into the world because he loves sinners, on a rescue mission to save us. His son obeys the law perfectly. The blood of Jesus is shed, not literally the liquid. Yes, he died. But when blood in the New Testament is talked about, it means violent and sacrificial death. A life terminated as punishment for sin at the requirement of God. It wasn't just that he died on the cross, it was that the judgment of God is poured out on him there. Atonement through substitution. He's not a victim. He lays down his own life. Without spot or blemish, that's the Lamb of God. In my place condemned, he stood. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him, Christ, and pardon me. What did he say on the cross, children? Do you remember? 
it is finished. He's drunk the cup to its dregs. The sin debt of his people is paid in full. He fulfilled the law. He kept the covenant. Every demand of the law has been fulfilled. Righteousness has been maintained. God doesn't overlook sin. He provides propitiation for sin. He pardons our sin by the grace and blood of Jesus so that the most wicked and vile of sinners can come to him. This is unique to Christianity. There is no father in Islam. Allah is a remote unknown. There's no hope in Hinduism or Buddhism. Here we have a loving and a forgiving father. The forgiveness is costly. Christ takes the judgment on himself. Come to him. How can we have this forgiveness? Coming by faith. Casting your sin on Jesus. Stop trying to earn our salvation. Rest in him. Believe in him. By the kindness of God, repent. Forsaking sin. Repentance begins when blame-shifting, self-pity, and self-righteous despair ends. Proverbs 28, 13. It begins when confession and renunciation and acceptance of the free grace and mercy of God begins. I am declared righteous because I trust in Jesus, whose righteousness is mine. I'm united to him by faith. He takes my sin, and now I have a conscience freed from fear and terror and guilt. Many Christians live as though their sins were greater than God. Daily. They then kind of droop. They live in despair. Their vision is short-sighted. Beloved, that is to make our sin greater than God's grace. But where have those sins gone? Into the depth of the sea. They've been laid on Christ. There's a sign there by that ocean. No fishing. Don't go back there. Don't fish there. Don't think those sins are condemning you. God is greater than your heart, 1 John 3. Meaning our heart condemns us. Our moods go up and down. Our feelings fluctuate. God is more merciful to you than your own heart is. 1 John 3.19 Don't look to your experiences or circumstances or health to know whether God loves you. Some of us are good at some things. We are rotten and fail at others. Some people like you. Other people can't stand you. Right? We know this. We don't look to those things to know whether God loves us. We look to Jesus. The gospel has the final word, not self-condemnation from our hearts. This parable quiets the restless heart. You can be at rest in Jesus. Third, and ask this question, what's a sign that you're being changed and have experienced the grace of God? Look at verse 28 again. The man is forgiven the enormous infinite debt He walks out of prison. What does he think? He thinks he's done it. He thinks he's paid the debt. 
He has no heartfelt gratitude to God, no trust and dependence upon God. He sees someone, he starts counting again. The count. One, two. What's he see? This guy owes me money. A hundred denarii, literally a hundred days' work. Some salaries are more than others, so you can see what that's like. That's not a small amount. Maybe you've heard that before. This is not like a little thing. This is big. A third of the year of work. On the other hand, it's nothing compared to the debt that he was forgiven. Someone did the math. One six hundred thousandth, if you want to do the math, of what he was forgiven. But even then, it doesn't add up because it's infinite. He seizes the man. He chokes the man. He demands the man, pay me what you owe. It's vivid. It's brutal. It's harsh. It's graceless. The man fell down and pleaded with him, be patient with me. I'll pay you. Do you see the similarity in verses 26 and 29? The words are almost identical to what he asked the king. The difference is the word everything is not in verse 29. He doesn't see it, does he? He's totally blind to it. He tosses this fellow servant into prison until he could pay the debt. Other servants see this. They report to the king. He's called to account a second time. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? This question, verse 33, is the core of the parable's meaning, isn't it? He's received abundant compassion and he has none for the servant. The judgment is devastating. Do you notice who doesn't speak? The first servant. He spoke a lot before. To the king, to the man who owed him, he does not speak now. Verse 34 is remarkable. Until he paid back all he owed. Beloved, he can never repay back all he owes. The punishment is endless. The imprisonment and the torture goes on. A day of judgment is coming. Jesus didn't go over that lightly. The judgment hangs over everyone who has not experienced God's forgiveness by faith in Jesus. Now, it's a parable. Don't read too much into it. See, meaning this. It's not teaching that someone can lose their salvation. It's not teaching purgatory. It's not teaching that you are saved by how much you forgive someone. Don't read all those things in here. It's a warning to the visible covenant community that if we don't forgive others, we show that we are not forgiven. That we've missed the point of the gospel entirely if we don't forgive when the grace of God is in our hearts and we have that assurance of salvation in Jesus, even if we don't feel it, we are forgiven of all of our sins, we are justified by his grace, that will transform God's people. The first sign we see in a heart transformed by God's forgiveness is that this heart is forgiving. The Lord's Prayer says the same thing, doesn't it? 
Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You can't love God and hate your brother. If you cannot forgive others, it shows that you don't know the forgiveness of God. That's the point. Many people profess to have asked God for forgiveness, but they've not been transformed by it. And where do you see that? You see that in relationships. Often, sadly, among professing Christians. Often, sadly, in the church. Who have you not forgiven today? Who have I not forgiven? What name comes to mind? What face? Maybe you need to forgive your spouse or say, I forgive you to your spouse. A parent, a sibling, a family member, an old friend, a business deal that's gone wrong and you've just been holding that against that person for years. Who are you at odds with in the church? Your school, personality conflicts, disagreements. Where has your love grown cold to someone? Beloved, this applies to all of us, myself included. You think of a name, you think of the hurt. It's not just easy, it doesn't just go away, but God says, look what I've done for you in Christ. An encouragement to go, to seek to be reconciled to that person, whoever it is. They may not respond, but pray that God gives you and them a spirit of humility and repentance so that we are not the one to perpetuate the ongoing bitter cycle. Forgiveness like this is not natural. What's natural is when I'm harmed, I harm someone. Do you notice that at home sometimes, kids, by the way? I'm among you all. When you have gone through some intensity, maybe at work or with a relationship, mom and dad, does it sometimes come out with your kids? Yeah. Or kids at school, maybe someone's treated you harshly and then you do the same to your sibling. That's what's natural. But by the gospel grace of God, the gospel promise comes to our marriage bed, to our elders and deacons meetings, to our schools, to our dinner table. The gospel says the wrong done to me will end with me. Beloved, in this new church building, let's not divide over preferences. Let's not let the Satan get a, a grudge here and kind of set us apart over small things. Yes, they matter, but let's love each other amidst disagreement over the building and maybe what we do with the building or how we repair the building. Or let's not let Satan get a foothold here. God, give me grace to be humble. What defines the church? What defines us at Emmaus Road is we're renting, and now by the grace of God here, those who are forgiven much, love much. Those who have received the love and grace of God, by the Spirit, pour that out to each other. Visitors notice when this begins to happen in a church, and by the grace of God, I'm thankful that it's here among us, but we must not grow complacent. When this is happening, people say something different has happened. We can't produce it. God's spirit does. The cross does. What's Matthew 18 about? Changed relationships among Christians. Marked by humility and service, not pride. 
patience and understanding each other's flaws and weaknesses. A readiness to reconcile and heal broken relationships. Emmaus Road. I don't know them. I've seen their sign. I've talked to some of them. I've visited maybe. But by the grace of God, they are the people who forgive. They are the community of God's people who loves. A new commandment I give you, Jesus says, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Amen. Beloved, let's pray for this among us. Let's stand and sing of God's wondrous grace in response. Turning to Rock of Ages, you'll find this printed on page 10.